Okay, gang, how about taking a Bible and going to 2 Corinthians chapter 9? 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Today is the last in a three-part series entitled Happy Money. And we've been examining the connection between money and happiness. Now, most of us have been told by our parents or we tell ourselves, we know better, money won't make you happy. Yet, if we examine our checkbooks or we examine our lifestyles, it appears there's some sort of disconnect between what we believe about money and happiness and how we actually handle our money. In other words, most of us know what's most important to God. Uh, and yet there's some kind of disconnect, some kind of short circuit when it comes to actually walking that out. For instance, most of us know that it is more important to God to give to others than to spend on ourselves. And yet, we spend much more on ourselves than we ever think about giving to others. Most of us know that, that giving to meet the needs of those who are suffering is far more noble. It's far more spiritual, we might say, in the eyes of God. And yet, very few of us were willing to sacrifice what we want for ourselves in order to meet needs for someone else. Helping others we know matters more to God than helping ourselves, and yet that's not the way most of us live. So if happiness cannot come from money, it must be because we simply don't have enough. In fact, that was our message last time. Last time, more is not the answer. A lot of people assume that, okay, money can make me happy on some level, so if I'm not happy yet, it must be because I don't have enough. And so we get caught in this whole cycle of discontentment, this cycle of pursuing more. We assume that if a little is good, more will be better. Remember last time in Luke chapter 12, Jesus said, careful, that's a subtle form of greed. Jesus said, be on your guard, watch out, look out, it's sneaking up behind you. When you believe that everything extra is for you to consume, that's a subtle form of greed. Jesus said, be very careful because you don't have to be Ebenezer Scrooge to battle with greed. If you're the kind of person that's always seeking more, always searching for more, always looking for more, and when you get the extra, you consume it on yourself without ever thinking of anyone or anything else, believe it or not, Jesus would call you greedy. Now, last time we also opened up the idea of a simple plan God has for our money. If you took everything the Bible says about money, possessions, and stuff, I'm talking about Old Testament, I'm talking about wisdom literature, I'm talking about the words of Jesus in the Gospels, I'm talking about the writings of the Apostles. If you took everything the Bible has to say about money, possessions, and stuff, it boils down to a threefold plan. The Bible says, give first, save second, and live on the rest. Old Testament, New Testament, wisdom literature, words of Jesus, Apostles or otherwise, they all say, give first... That gives us joy. That helps us overcome greed. That is God's prescription against greed. Save second, that offers peace. That little nest egg that we've got set aside just in case something goes upside down. And then live on the rest. Give first, save seconds, and then live within your means. It's like 
take care of God's kingdom and his purpose first, and then take care of your kingdom second, and then figure out a way to live within your means on the rest. Today, I want to reveal, finally, after three weeks, the connection between money and happiness, but as we've already stated, it's not more. Give, save, live has nothing to do with more. Give, save, live is the plan, but God won't do that for you. You've got to do that yourself. Give, save, live is the plan. The Bible uses the term steward when it comes to us, our money, our resources, and our stuff. You realize the Bible never calls me an owner of my home or an owner of my vehicles or an owner of my stuff. The Bible calls me a steward. What is a steward? A steward is a manager, someone who's been placed in charge of someone else's stuff. You see, that's the way God looks at your life, your money, your bank account, your business, your credit cards, your home, your stuff. You have been granted the authority to care for something that you don't own. I mean, let's be honest. One day, my home won't be mine. It will belong to someone else. One day, my car won't be mine. It will belong to someone else. The Bible uses the term steward, stewardship. That's the process of giving, saving, and living on the rest. Jesus said in Matthew, or excuse me, Luke chapter 16 and verse 13 that no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. If you have an old King James version of the scriptures, that translation says you cannot serve both God and mammon. Do you know what the Greek word there translated mammon or money means? It means money and stuff. Now, I find this interesting because I think most of us would say, hang on, wait a minute, I don't hate God and I don't love my stuff. I'm not devoted to my money and despise God. So what is Jesus communicating? You cannot serve both God and money. It's a passage of opposite extremes, is it not? You've got love and you've got hate. You've got devotion and you've got despise or despising something. Jesus comes along and says, you cannot serve both God and what's the opposite of God? The devil. I mean, that's like what you think he would say. You can't serve two kings, God and the devil. That might make more sense to us, but that's not what he says. He doesn't even say you can't serve two masters, God and evil. He says you can't serve two masters, God and your money. Jesus is saying that the chief competition in this life for your devotion and love to God is your devotion and love to money. Not the devil, not evil, money. You see, inside there's a desire, and that, de that desire is equivalent to devotion. What Jesus is saying is, even though you don't think you love your stuff, have you ever made a decision in light of your stuff and not God? In fact, here's a good question. Consider this. I'm sure we've all been here at one point or another. Question. Has your desire for something, for more to acquire, has your desire ever caused you to do something stupid? Now, first of all, notice there's no comma in that question. I'm not calling you stupid. Has your desire ever caused you to do something stupid? Okay, I'm not saying that, all right? But we've all been there. We've all figured out a way to acquire what we desire and later live to regret it. What is that? 
That is devotion. That's an unhealthy attachment to mammon, to money and stuff. If I've ever gone against common sense, which I have, if I've ever gone against biblical precedent, which I have, to acquire something I desire, that speaks of devotion. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, you can't serve both. You're either going to be motivated to decide based upon desire, or you're going to be motivated to decide based upon God. Desire equals devotion. In fact, Another way to say this, or at least kind of finally reveal the connection between happiness and money, Jesus is going to lay it out for us and has over the last couple of weeks. The connection is not more. The connection is management. What does Jesus say about happiness and money? He doesn't say it's about more. He says it's about management. Stop and think about this. That's why we all know people with a little, far less than we have, who seem happier than we are. It's because they manage what they have better than we manage what we have. The word steward or stewardship means just that, management. The secret connection between happiness and money is how that money is managed. That's what we've wanted to get to for three weeks. It's not about more, it's about management. Because listen, more cannot bring you peace. More does not deliver you from bondage. But management can do both. Here's another way of saying it. Jesus said, if you don't learn how to manage your money, then your money will manage you. When we learn how to manage it, whether we have a big pile or a little pile, whether we've been at this for a long time or a very short time, when we learn how to manage our money, that's what the Bible calls stewardship, we become less devoted to the money and free from the financial bondage. Now, this whole process is laid out for us, the management of God's money. It's kind of expounding on the give, save, and live model we talked about last time. It's laid out for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. If you were to list all the famous chapters in the Bible, of course, Psalm 23 would be on the list. John chapter 3, because of verse 16, that would be on the list. Malachi chapter 4, for instance, might be on the list. But I can promise you 2 Corinthians chapter 9 should be on your list. This is one of the most world-famous passages in the Bible because it describes with great detail what the process actually looks like to give save, and live on the rest. If you came here today having never given a thought or heard of 2 Corinthians chapter 9, I hope when you leave today, it will never be far from you because it has so much to do with our peace, our contentment, and our management. In chapter 8, we won't read it today, but you can read it later, Paul explains what's going on. You see, all the churches that are listed in the Bible, the churches begun by Paul and the other apostles, the church at Ephesus, the churches at Galatia, the church at Philippi, here the church at Corinth, they were collecting an offering to send to Jerusalem to further the work of God's kingdom. They were going to build a headquarters, basically, in Jerusalem, and they not only wanted to meet needs, they not only wanted to solve problems, they needed the resources to magnify the work of God in his kingdom. It's very similar, almost identical to what this church and others like it does with the offering that we collect and that we give 
day in and day out. In chapter 8, he explains how that related to the churches at Macedonia. In chapter 9, he uses them as an example and targets the church at Corinth. Read this with me, beginning in verse 1. 2 Corinthians 9, Paul writes, There is no need for me to write to you about this service to the Lord's people. In other words, I'm sure you haven't forgotten about this offering we're taking to take to Jerusalem. Verse 2, For I know you're eager to help, and I've been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year you and Achaia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. Skip down to verse 5. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift that you had promised. Then it will be ready for as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying it's not yet time for us to collect this offering, but I'm still sending a few guys ahead of me. They're going to remind you of your commitment. They're going to try and challenge you to be generous because when you give this offering, I want you to do so cheerfully. I want you to do so with, with high hopes. I want you to do so obediently, not begrudgingly, not with a covetous heart. Like, I'm giving it, but I don't really want to. Look at verse 6. Remember this. When the Bible says, remember this, you know what we're supposed to do? Remember it, okay? Remember this. Mark this down. This is important. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now, this is the sowing-reaping principle. We all get this. This is the law of sowing. If you're a gardener, if you're a farmer, you get this. You know what sowing and reaping is all about. The harvest is directly connected to the amount of seeds you sow. I am on my fourth garden ever in my life. Not much of a farmer, but I'm trying really hard, okay? Last spring, we planted several of our favorite vegetables, and I've not yet really come to understand the ratio between how many seeds I put in the row versus how many hours I'm going to spend throughout the hot months of July and August picking that okra. I planted two rows of okra, and I have had okra coming out of my ears. I've given away as much okra as I could find anybody to take it. I've put okra in everything I know how to cook. I've thought about sprinkling it on top of my cereal. We've fried it. We've cooked it in casseroles. I've frozen it. We've done everything I can do because why? I planted too many seeds. I planted too many seeds of okra. I didn't realize you put a few seeds in a hole and you do that two rows long in your garden and you're out there picking okra for months. Every gardener understands the law of the harvest. Every gardener understands if you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. If you sow generously, you reap abundantly. Keep going. Verse number seven. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. I love that. Note the flexibility of God's plan. Paul is not painting with a large, broad brush. You should give what I give. I should give what you give. Regardless of what you make, we should give what they give. That's not the way Scripture works. Every man, Paul says, or woman, should give what they've decided in their heart to give. You know what that word means? Decided, it means premeditated. It means predetermined. It means you don't simply walk into church on Sunday, pull out your wallet after the service, say, I've got a 50, well, that's for lunch, and i got a five. Well, God gets the five. That's not how you give. You sit down, and you intentionally premeditated, 
predetermined, carve off that concrete percentage of your income, which is what God has given you. You're only a steward of it, and you give it back to the kingdom and the work of God. Don't do it reluctantly. Don't do it under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. Verse 8, and God is able to bless you abundantly. Now, be very careful, but don't miss it. God is able, when we sow generously, to bless us generously. God is, remember, the context here is giving financially. God is able to bless us, maybe a financial blessing, maybe other blessings. God can abound in grace, he's about to say. He can cover your marriage, he can cover your business, he can cover your relationship with your family. God can bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. For as it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he, God, who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Did you get that? Basically, Paul is saying, remember, you'll never outgive God. Because you and God are in this work together. God needs you to supply his kingdom. So as we give first, save second, live on the rest, as we give sacrificially that prioritized percentage gift as part of our income, the Bible calls it a tithe, but don't get hung up on the number 10. As we do so, God makes sure that we have enough to give again the next time it comes around, and again the next time it comes around. In fact, Paul said, if you notice, God sees this as a work of righteousness. This is highly spiritual stuff here. Giving as God requires is righteous in his eyes. Keep reading. Verse 11. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. The reason this passage is world famous is because it contains the four laws of stewardship. Very quickly, I'm going to highlight them and then we'll close. Here's law number one. It's the law of the harvest. We talked about this a moment ago from chapter 9 and verse 6. The law of the harvest. Remember this. Verse 6 begins. Mark it down. Don't be afraid. You can trust God as you wrestle with biblical stewardship. Don't forget the law of the harvest. Don't forget how the process works. If you don't manage your money, your money will manage you. If you sow it sparingly to the kingdom of God, you will reap it sparingly. If you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. If you give just enough to kind of keep God happy, you're going to receive in this life just enough to get by. That is the law of the harvest. If, on the other hand, you sow generously, you will reap generously. You see, if you are afraid to carve off that commitment and give it to the kingdom of God, give it to the work of God in this church and in our community, if you're afraid, it's because you don't understand the law of the harvest. There it is for you in black and white. If you sow sparingly to my kingdom, you're going to reap sparingly. But if you sow generously, watch out, you'll reap generously. Here's law number two, the law of the individual. Verse seven says, it's not about what I give. It's not about what they give. It's not about the fact that they make more money than you do or I do, or they make less than we do. It's not about one size fits all. 
What it's about is your predetermined, calculated, prayerfully decided upon, prioritized percentage gift to the work of God. That's the law of the individual. I love the flexibility of God's plan. We give consistently, not under compulsion, not reluctantly, not because the preacher gets up there and says, hey, we really need to do this and we really need to do that and I'll show you some pictures to make you feel really bad and now maybe you'll give. No, that's not the way wise money managers who are happy give. The law of the individual. Here's the third law, the law of provision. Did you see verse 8? Verse 8 says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you can abound in every good work. What's he saying? He's saying, don't forget, God is ultimately in charge of the blessing. God is ultimately in charge of the process. The law of provision is simple. In all things, at all times, if I'm giving first to the kingdom of God, he's going to bless me to enable me to care for my kingdom as well. That's the law of provision. One of the more contemporary versions of Scripture translates verse 8 as, You will always have all you need for yourselves and more than enough for every good cause. And that leads us to law number four. Law number four is the law of the purpose. Why does God make these outrageous promises? As I told you last time, giving to the work of God is the only command in Scripture that comes with a dare. Did you know that? The only time in Scripture that God says, do this, I dare you, is stewardship. Malachi chapter 4. Go ahead, bring me the tithe, I dare you. See if I don't return the blessing because of the law of the harvest, because of the law of the individual, because of the law of provision. The purpose of the whole plan is to partner with God. So according to verses 9 and 11, you're going to be made rich enough to be able to fund and fuel the work of God's kingdom. You see, we're partners in this. We need God to bless us so that we might give. God needs us to give to further his kingdom. It's a beautiful cycle, and God makes sure we have what we need that we might need, meet those needs. So, if this is so clear, if this is so clear-cut and, and black and white, there it is in one chapter. We read 11 verses that could potentially change your financial portfolio. Why don't we do it? Why don't more people embrace it? Why don't we buy in? The fact is, we don't buy in. You can crunch these numbers yourself. There are all kinds of studies out there, from Pew Research to the Barna Group. Uh, several places you can find numbers like this, and they're only a year or two old. According to these resources, in this church and others just like it in the United States of America, the research indicates 40% of this audience overspends monthly, meaning we go a little bit further in the hole every month. That's why we never seem to get ahead. That's why we live under financial bondage. Because whatever we take in, we seem to spend just a little bit more. There's always that unplanned expense that we didn't think about, that we didn't have room for in our budget, and we get farther and farther and farther behind. Four out of ten people in this audience, nationwide, churches just like it, overspend monthly. One out of three, 31%, spend more than $2,000 a year in credit card interest. Think about this for a moment. If I asked you right now, look, we've got to fix the roof in the church. 
I need you to give $2,000. If every family at Grace gave $2,000, we'd solve this and other problems. You'd look at your checkbook and say, I can't afford $2,000. And yet every year in our nation, the most prosperous nation in the history of mankind, average people like you and me in average churches like this one all across our great land are spending more than $2,000 in interest on a credit card. That means you're paying interest today on a meal you ate and digested seven months ago, and you're telling God, I don't have enough money to give. Think about that. Wow, that's a little too close to home, isn't it? Okay, let's go on. Here's number three, 34%, that's again one in three, one in three in this church and others like it, tithe, give a biblical 10%, only one in three. 40% give 3% or less, 40%, 3% or less, 26% give nothing. Now, why do the numbers in the most prosperous nation in the history of mankind look so dim? I think it's because we've bought into several myths that just aren't biblical when it comes to giving. I think we've convinced ourselves of several things that just aren't biblical when it comes to stewardship. Let me cover these and I'll quit. Here's myth number one. When we give, we give out of our abundance. Well, Pastor Mike, at the end of the month, if I have anything left, I'll peel some of that off and I'll give to the church. That's not biblical giving. You don't make the money, pay the bills, take care of self, and whatever's left over, peel off some and give to God. That's not tithing. The Bible describes the whole idea of stewardship using two words, tithe and offerings. A tithe is a prioritized percentage of my income, the whole, before I ever pay the mortgage, before I ever buy the groceries, before I ever provide for my family. I carve off that gift and I give it to God. That's a tithe. Then at the end of the month when there's leftover, the Bible says I'm supposed to be generous with my offering. So we don't give out of our abundance. We give out of our whole. Here's myth number two. Well, Pastor Mike, tithing is just impossible. I mean, if, if, if you look at what I make and you compare it to my bills and I sit down with a calculator and I multiply what I make by 10%, there's no way I can give that number to the work of God. Tithe, look, I told you last time, if you can't commit to 10%, then prayerfully in a predetermined, calculated way, carve off three and commit to it. And when you get used to three, set your eye on five. And when you start giving five, put your eyes towards seven and then nine and then 10 and then 11. That's how you give, save, and live on the rest. If you're sitting here and waiting for the magical day when somehow you can carve off 10% of what you make to give to God's kingdom, that day will never come because you haven't been able to afford it yet. Uh, likely you won't be able to afford it then. Here's number three, the myth of the prosperity doctrine. There are preachers on television at three o'clock in the morning that make my job more difficult. Because they say things like, send me $100 and God will give you 1000 Mail me a check for 1000 and God will give you $10,000. Look, that's called the prosperity doctrine. And it's anything but biblical. Listen, some of the most godly individuals in this book were also the most wealthy. Kings, ranchers, men who owned real estate, 
but also some of the most righteous, godly individuals were the poorest. How much you give has nothing to do with what God gives back. All we know from 2 Corinthians chapter 9 is that it will always be enough to meet our needs and then some. That's the law of the provision. Here's myth number four. Well, any giving is biblical giving. I mean, Pastor Mike, look, we don't give much to the church, but we've decided to volunteer for uh, nursery. We're going to give of our time. I mean, that's the same thing, isn't it? Not in this Bible. I mean, that's a good work and that's a good thing, but it's not the same. Pastor Mike, look, we don't give anything to the church, but look, when I'm in Savannah at work and I see one of those guys at the, the intersection holding up that sign, you know, please help me, God, God bless, I'm a vet, I always roll down my window and hand them money. Isn't that part of God's work, God's kingdom? Well, it's a good thing to do, but that's what you do with your offerings and your extra, not your tithe, according to this book. This certain, these are not my words. These come from this. Last one. Large churches surely don't need my money. Large churches don't need my money. Sadly, we have this mistaken notion that giving to the church is kind of a win-lose scenario. You know, I come to church, and if I give at church, then I must be giving to church. And Mike and the staff and the people who work in the church, they win, but I lose. That's not stewardship. That's certainly not cheerful giving. Listen, that's not even an accurate assessment of what's taking place. Look, if you go home this afternoon and you simply research through our Chamber of Commerce the median household income of Bullock County, you're going to come up with a number somewhere in the mid-40 range, $46,000, $47,000 annually, the median household income. If you multiply that times, let's just guess conservatively, 350 families at Grace Community Church, do you realize that our annual budget, what we could do in Kenya, Romania, would be multiplied by five? You realize that? In other words, if we all made the median household income and we tithed on that median household income, our budget would multiply five times over at Grace Community Church. That means anybody that really wanted to go to Kenya and help for 10 days but couldn't afford it, we could make sure they went. That means anybody that wanted to go to Romania and make a difference in the lives of homeless people, but they simply couldn't afford $2,100, $2,200, we could see to it that they did. That means that anything Kenya needed to save lives, anything Romania needed to save lives, anything we could do to expand the kingdom of God here on this campus, there'd be no question. There'd be no issue. But like the old preacher said, the good news is the work for God's kingdom is here. The bad news, it's still in your pocket. People ask me all the time, why don't we talk about this more often? I looked it up this past week. It's been four years since we've done more than one service on the subject of stewardship. Four years. A lot of churches talk about it all the time. This is the only church I've ever had any association with that doesn't pass an offering plate. That's because I don't ever want you to think for a moment that while the pastor may not know your name, he knows what you give. That's not my motivation. I have never brought this information to light using the word of God to fill the church coffers. God is my witness. I have no idea what people in this church give to this church. I see a total at the end of the month. That's all I know. So why do I wait four years to talk about something so critical? It's not because I'm afraid to address the topic. I love the topic. 
I'm passionate about the topic. The reason I struggle to bring it before you more often is because it is the only command in Scripture that comes with a dare. I've seen it work my entire life, and yet it is so easily dismissed by so many good men and women who attend this and other churches like it, and it ought not be. And that's just disheartening. Let it not be so. Jesus said, there is a connection between your happiness and your money, but it's not in having more. It's about how you manage it. If you need help managing your money, there are volunteer ministers in this church who will sit down with you at your kitchen table or in their office, and they'll help you set up a confidential family budget so you don't have to live in the bondage or the pressure any longer. God bless you. Let's pray. Uh, Father, it could not be more clear Over and over and over and over again, you highlight three ideas. Give, save, and live within our means. Father, teach us to manage your resources that way. We try and do that at this church. Father, help us individually do that as well. We pray these things, God, because if there is anything that creates pressure in marriage and family, anything that creates pressure on individuals, It's financial pressure. It's money. And it simply ought not be that way. So open our eyes, minds, and hearts, our spirits to this idea of stewardship, godly management of your resources, I pray in the name of your risen son, Jesus. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Fantastic to see you today. Go out and make it a great week. I'll see you next time.